I'm Han. And I'm Sheree. You're listening to It Just Got Real. So Sheree, you had a pretty big week. I saw your Instagram stories and I was so jealous that I couldn't have been there in New York that night. Instagram was definitely lit to fill everyone in. So if you were not living on planet Earth, Beyonce dropped Black is King on Friday. And since my company is dedicated to bridging the gap between Africa and the diaspora, and we are in peak membership launch vibes, it only made sense that our first in real life experience post the Rona was a rooftop watch party of Black is King with our early adopter members and close friends and community members. And it was definitely one of the most glorious moments for me of 2020. Amazing. It was like borderline religious experience, honestly. I mean, when I saw the stories, I was like, oh, why don't I live in New York anymore? I needed to be there. And you just were like, glowing in those photos and your outfit was super cute. I really thought about it. The dress code was like all black everything, except it didn't mean like just wear black. It was like black designers, like Mm. black jewelry makers, like make it fashion, make it fashion. Like it was kind of like those vibes, but it was interesting. Like, I guess the real moment sort of part of this is that like, I had no plans to do Mm. this thing. And tell me you were doing this in New York. You say post the Rona, but like, I mean, Coronavirus is still kind of We're going on. How did you logistically, how did you pull this off so that it was safe? Whew. I mean, the level of anxiety and and not for nothing, I still have anxiety and I will have anxiety for the next 12 days until I know that we didn't cause an outbreak, honestly. So I had this idea on Saturday night, last Saturday night. So less than a week ago. Black is King came up on Friday. (laughs) So I basically had five days to like figure this thing out. But that's like also how you planned the first thread. It is. That's a whole separate show. (laughs) But I had a very limited time to actually plan this thing and figure it out. But what I knew 100% was like, I could cut no corners Mm. when it came to safety. Mm -hmm. And so I went and looked at a bunch of outdoor spaces And while some of them were like considerably cheaper, I did not feel like they were taking things seriously. So I ended up going with this rooftop space that like even in the lobby of the space had like social distance stickers six feet apart to let people know where to stand. Mm. They had all these like hand sanitizing stations Mm -hmm. and I limited the guest list like very seriously To the point that, like, as we talked about on Clubhouse, like, I was trying to be so secretive that I, like, secreted myself out of the whole situation and, like, lost the whole damn guest list because... I was going to ask. So it looked like you got the guest list back from the pictures because there were people there. Well, I ended up sending a note and I, like, I updated the type form and it was like, this is awkward. I need you to, like, RSVP again. And, like, that was the message we sent out, like, a quirky kind, which is, like, (laughs) very on brand for, like, what we would say. So it was, like, kind of a mess. We definitely had more RSVPs than I knew people we could let in. So, like, maybe two and a half hours before the event, I sent out, like, this very stern message Mm -hmm. to dissuade people from coming and it was, like, if you're not there by 7.30, we're going to close doors. Now, mind you, doors opened at 7.00. 
And I love my people, but we'd be late. And so I just knew that, like, saying, like, doors are going to close at this time, some people at 4 p.m. were not going to be, like, rushing to try to get there at 7.30. Mm-hmm. They'd just be like, oh, whatever. Yeah, I don't have time for this. I'm staying home. I'll watch it on Disney's Plus. Exactly. But some people showed up early. And so I think part of it was like going with the venue that I knew took COVID as seriously as I did. The second part was just like being really, really vigilant on the whole guest list situation. And like we had security, like we were keeping count. We had like a serious health protocol. Like you walked in, you got your temperature checked. Not that that actually does anything, but we had that happen. People filled out paperwork, signed off waivers. Like it was like a very serious situation. Like we set up the chairs six feet apart. People were required to have masks when they weren't eating and drinking. We had a few like group table situations, but people weren't allowed to sit with people that didn't live in their household. So we were pretty serious about all the front end stuff, even like sanitizing the chairs and even the alcohol. Like we were originally talking to like a drink sponsor who was like thinking about doing it last minute, but ended up going with buying wine in a can or like those G&Ts in a can, vodka sodas in a can. Mm, So you didn't even have like mixed drinks. Exactly. No, like you literally like grabbed your personal thing, you drink it. And then you put it in the recycle bin. Mm -hmm. So it was a very socially distanced moment for the culture, but it was so glorious. So now that everybody is like excited about what you did, tell us about the moment. Tell us about this event. The moment it got real for me was like, as those of you who've been following the show, you know that Tastemakers has been a travel company for most of our existence. And when COVID shut borders down, I had to do so much like deep thinking about who could we be? Who are we supposed to be? The thread that we created, you know, came out of that thinking. And in many ways was also a very sort of intuitive moment. But I think building a consumer company requires a significant level of intuition on the part of the founders and sort of Mm -hmm. the moment I realized that was when I basically greenlit this event that I wanted to do. And I collapsed some decisions in my head, like this would make sense because we have this member program and it's important for us to sort of show what the membership looks and feels like. I knew I wanted to sort of do something that would help the sort of ideal member community immediately get it. And this felt like a historic moment in time that we as a brand should completely be a part of. And so I knew I was going to have to spend some money, mm-hmm. especially if I wanted to keep people safe. Yeah, I wasn't going to be able to kind of bootleg it. And I made the decision to do it because of what I felt in my gut. Mm. Like in my gut, I was like, if I do this, this is going to be a moment. And I made the decision to do it before I had a venue before I had a screen, before I had a projector, before I had a sound system, before I had a list, before I really knew if people in New York were even having an appetite to do this. I had no idea. I just knew in my gut that we were supposed to do this. And I think the reason I say that moment was my real moment was because it's been something that I, as a founder, am constantly struggling with. Mm. Being a founder that has really strong intuition about your customer Mm -hmm is like a beautiful thing, 
But in the startup world, it's always about use data to drive what you do and data-driven. And like, that's the message. Yeah, experimentation and metrics and customer development. Yeah. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And there's not a lot of literature or coaching or advice to sort of tell you like as a CEO or as a founder, like, Mm -hmm. what do you do when you just know? Mm -hmm. And how do you optimize when you just know? Mm -hmm. And it took for one of our advisors and actually one of our investors too. So I would say Michael Mitchell, who is actually the global head of the brand at MailChimp, and then Eric Blackford, who I spoke about a couple of times on the pod, former CEO of Expedia, and now the managing partner at Narrative Fund. Both of them have told me on more than one occasion, like your intuition and the things you know naturally and inherently are what make you a really strong founder. And that's been like, dope to have in my corner because it does sometimes feel like that being that way as a founder is diminished. Mm -hmm. And what I found both with the thread and with doing this Black is King event on Friday was kind of like, no girl, you need to lean into that. And you need to really respect and make sure you put yourself in a space where you have the time to sit with what your company is trying to do and to be able to be curious and creative about it Mm -hmm. where your intuition can actually guide you towards the sort of moments that become pivotal things in your business. Because we did this thing on Friday and the crowd we were able to pull in in such a short time and the buzz that has lasted like from then till now has been like the exact kind of positioning that we need as we pursue this new way of doing business. And going beyond travel. Exactly. And so no amount of strategizing and putting it on paper, like maybe we could have gotten a liquor sponsor if we worked on it earlier. You know what I mean? Like there are a few things that maybe could have been some cost savings, but like the intuition around the moment was the right thing. It's been able to carry us into other things, like literally over the weekend. And it was so mission aligned with what we're trying to do that it would have been foolish for us not to like insert ourselves into the conversation. Mm -hmm. And even from us doing that event and people seeing it on the internet and hearing like quote unquote influencers who were there speaking about how dope it was, has opened up the door for like other conversations that help us out a lot from the perspective of where we're trying to go Mm. with the membership and with the broader community-based platform. So sometimes you just need to listen to yourself. All the time. You need to listen to yourself all the time. Facts. But especially in consumer, like I love this moment because as a designer, I tend to approach product in a very creative, instinct-driven kind of way based Mm -hmm. on like watching people, observing them, really knowing the customer, like you said, and then just you kind of have an intuition for what the customer wants. And I'm a big believer in using both, using both intuition and data. Like it's not a one or the other. This is not a binary thing. It's like a use all the tools in your tool belt. Absolutely. But this one often gets left out because it takes a very special type of person to do it. Mm -hmm. And a lot of PMs, like product managers don't do this. They don't know how to do it. They can only optimize or they can only build. Mm -hmm. And so it doesn't get written about in the books. It doesn't get written about in like the cracking the PM interview book. It doesn't get written about in other classic Silicon Valley 
literature about how to build product. Yeah. But this is actually what's at the root of every great company is a founder that had intuition. I love that because I think the reason there are books about all of those things is because they are teachable. Yeah. And they're repeatable processes where you can like put it down and follow the plan. But like, there's no way to teach intuition. I mean, I could recommend some books on like how to listen to yourself and how to foster creativity within you. Right. But that's like a personal journey for everybody. And like you say, having the space and time to be able to explore it is different for everybody. Absolutely. And that's kind of where I am now. I think at the end of the day, it was important for us to be building out this new expanded vision of who we are as a company and using data and running experiments and all the things I've been doing over the past four months, like those muscles needed to be developed, but I couldn't forget who I was as a leader, as a founder, and as the visionary behind this company in the process. And so the moment this week was really like, wow, like this is the intersection. Because even in doing the event, the execution of the event was a result of all the data I had all the proof points, all the KPIs I knew I needed to hit, Mm -hmm. all that stuff you read about in the books was like showing up in how we executed it. And I think Tastemakers is still an experiences company to the core. We're just creating experiences that you don't have to get on a plane or even leave your house all the time to do. And so I think for me, it was like such an intersectional moment. Mm -hmm. One of the reasons gut-based or intuition-driven founders oftentimes don't get credit as being some of the smartest, brightest ones we look up to is because I think sometimes language is a barrier. Mm, Absolutely. I tell people all the time, like, intuition is like collapsing a series of judgments and decisions in a split second in your head. So people characterize intuition as like only emotional feeling-based And I actually think intuition is a intersection between feeling and rapidly occurring thought processes. And I remember a conversation with Charles, the investor that Han and I both share. We were talking about language. And I think one of the things that I have learned is that there is language to describe what I might be saying is an intuitive process, Mm -hmm. but is actually me being really sharp at a certain process or customer understanding Mm -hmm. or marketing. And I'm writing it off as intuition because I'm lacking language. And I think the challenge for anyone who doesn't come from like a traditional business background or they don't come from a traditional, like for our space, cis, white, male, tech founder background is that you could be epically awesome at something. But if you don't have the language that an investor or even a potential partner understands, you could get lost in translation. Absolutely. And that's why you have to have investors that have different perspectives, that are open-minded, that are human in how they make decisions, because otherwise you're going to get indexed based on some language Mm -hmm. that you don't even know you're supposed to know And it's blocking the brilliance that you actually have and the know-how you have in being successful in building a company. So that was the other thing. I think this is true for anybody who chooses to make a business out of their craft or something that they know. 
because you're just, you don't have that language. And I actually really felt this in this fundraise that we've been in. Like one of my investors told me, he was like, Hannah, you being like such a product and design person is like both a blessing and a curse because this is why you can make such great stuff. But like the way you're talking about it is just not what investors want to hear. Like you need to use these five keywords. And they were like, words I would never use. Right. (laughs) But once I started using those words, I could see visibly in the conversations, like people's ears would prick up, like, oh, she knows what she's talking about. And it's such a game. Like half the battle is just knowing what words to use to describe what dope shit you're making. Absolutely. It's a two-way street. Yes, it's great to be intuitive as a founder. I think it's a freaking superhero trait if you get it right. But I think what supercharges you is actually learning the language to describe your awesomeness and really kind of talking to people and saying, hey, these are some things I've figured out naturally. I don't know how I figured them out. How would you describe that? And sort of being open Mm. to getting that coaching. That's a great tip. Yeah, like I've definitely found that being willing to say like, this is what I've done with what I have and really taking note to like, how somebody rephrases or reforms. Like Mm -hmm. even now, the way I pitch my company comes from years of pitching it in my own words and listening to what investors or friends- Say back to you. Say back to me. And listening to the questions that they ask you too. And being like, oh, that's a thing that I should lead with next time. Yes. This is not to dissuade anybody and be like, you need to use some language you don't know. But I think really smart investors- are going to be able to pick up on it and what you do, regardless of what language you use. But for maybe a decent investor that might not be as clued in, you can meet them halfway by sort of doing the work of understanding the language that describes this thing you're putting in the intuition box and like explaining what's driving your intuition which translates to data in the mind of somebody else. Absolutely. You know, I've said to a bunch of people now that all of my worst career decisions or like mistakes that I made, I'm talking like, you know, like product mistakes where like Mm -hmm. I felt I needed to go in one direction, but the team went in another direction and I didn't speak up, something like that. It was all because I talked myself out of listening to my gut almost every single time. And so like after that happened, like, I don't know, three or four times. I was like, damn, this is a thing I need to listen to. And it's the worst thing to like get wrong. Like I say all the time and I can be a bit bullish about my own opinions. I'm like that person that if I get in an Uber and they're like navigating on a different navigation to me. Oh yeah, me too. I'll be like, which direction are you going? Why aren't you taking this? I'll be like, are you using Waze? Like I'm that person because I would rather be wrong on my own thought Mm -hmm. than be wrong on trusting somebody else. So like, if I feel something in my gut now, like I'm not saying my gut is always going to lead me in the right direction, but I would rather listen to it and be wrong and be like, ooh, how do we sharpen that? How do we figure out our listening ear? How do we, Mm -hmm. then like go against it for what somebody else said and then it go wrong. I hate that feeling. Cause then it's like double frustration. Cause you're like, ugh, now this thing happened. And it's because I didn't say something or I didn't fight for this. Yeah. Yeah. The cab driver scenario is such a great one because they're often so like Mr. Know-it-all about the direction. And it's like, "Mm mm-mm. Right. I've said to them, you know what? I'd rather be mad at me for being late than mad at you. And I think you would too. That's a great line. Let's talk about record scratches this week. Uh, WTF with like ridiculous people 
not taking Megan Thee Stallion getting shot in two entire feet. She got shot in both of her feet by a man that she knows. I cannot believe that people are mocking her. Like, what is wrong with you? And all the people that are mocking her also need to have a seat. Like, Drea, I get it. You still go to the gym. Your body's banging. But aside from that, why are you speaking on the internet? First and foremost. Mm -hmm. And 50 Cent did his, like, apology. But he's an internet bully anyway. Yeah. So, like, buy 50 Cent. But it's just also, like, dang, like, where in the world is it okay for any person to get shot and the response to be to mock? Like, it's like... Exactly. She's a celebrity. Cool. But she's also a person. Yeah. How is that even funny? Like, she got hurt. It's just awful what happened to her. The Washington Post had an interesting article on it that I was reading earlier this morning or something that came up in my news feeds and about like how her words on the topic were like very resounding for black women Mm -hmm. because they recognize her treatment as like this representation of the vitriol they often encounter when they're victims of violence. Yep. It's such a good example of that, like right in front of our face on our Instagram feeds right now. And like people just need to take this shit seriously. It's also like a microaggression turned macro. Mm -hmm. Like, the strong Black woman thing is the thing I hate the most. It even shows up in these, like, really small ways. Like, if I'm leaving Whole Foods and I have a bunch of bags and it's not an automatic door, like, there are many scenarios where, like, a person will not realize that I need help Mm -hmm. because of the frequency that this sort of thing happens and the frequency at which I see people fall over themselves to help non-Black women. This idea that, like, our pain threshold is super high. Mm-hmm. and Well, there's statistics on that, that, like, Black women experience more pain in, like, dentists and doctors because they, like, aren't dosed as well or something with anesthetic. Yeah. It's crazy. Like, yeah. there's this real false belief and um it needs to stop like getting shot in your feet is real and everybody needs to sit down and stop mocking megan seriously i just hope she rap battles over all of them and just drags them all because it's ridiculous or as dora would say ridiculoso (laughs) (laughs) so um apparently trump really thinks that maybe he should ban tiktok so that has been a pretty large record scratch in my world. It's been a wild, like, last week was just wild, and this weekend, like, watching both Triller and Bite go to the top of the charts, and, like, I'm so impressed and happy for Dom and all the success that he's seeing with Bite. I mean, mm-hmm. I just think that that's such an amazing everything comes <laughs> comes around story there because um, he was the founder of Vine, But yeah, I mean, we'll see what happened. I still find it like very hard to believe that TikTok will actually get banned or actually get shut down. Like it just feels like there's way too much money at stake and there's too much economy. And somebody is going to find a way to like make it a more American company. And that's also happening as well. And there's all these rumors about Microsoft. Which would Um, be really interesting if Microsoft buys it. Which would be really interesting and weird. Like I'm trying to imagine Bill Gates making a TikTok and I, I can't see it i'm just so confused but then i don't know they bought github so like microsoft did buy github yeah so it's funny my son is always on tiktok and he was even telling me about like 
yeah, mom, TikTok's going to get shut down. Well, yeah, because all the creators right now are like, go follow me on Instagram, most of them. Really? Until the big ones are going to get paid to move to other platforms. That's what will happen if it happens. I'm still taking the stance that I think it's extremely unlikely that it will actually get banned. And this is just a drama. (laughs) Also, the other thing is having worked in this industry for a long time, I know that creators in particular are fairly dramatic people. I mean, they are actors, right? So they have a tendency to dramatize and like the gossip and the drama and like the shit that goes down, it rolls deep with these people. Like that was something that I was really shocked by going from music or working in music to working in video. Like the same way that things get blown out of proportion on Twitter because Twitter is mostly populated by journalists and journalists write opinions. Like we have to also remember that this is a platform that is literally made up of a bunch of dramatic actor-y types of people. And so we'll see. I mean, we'll see. It is definitely a major record scratch. I would be sad if TikTok went away. I think the mom in me is not sad, (laughs) but that's like strictly because I think it's like secretly indoctrinating my son into like internet mindlessness. So I mean, the thing is, is that if it goes away, there will just be another thing that will replace it. And for better or for worse, short form video is here to stay. I don't think it's going anywhere anytime soon. It's just going to shift platforms. Speaking of short form video, if you guys haven't downloaded Trash, like I have to give you a quick shout out because I did some videos from said Black is King rooftop watch party. And I have gotten so much love on trash and out in the internet. And so I think the first thing is it's the first time that I've seen like that, like social interaction bit on trash. Mm. And it's been like pretty fun to see that like people have remixed my video and that like so many people liked it. And like, I definitely think you're like getting this like explorability thing down because I hadn't seen those notifications before. I think the other thing that you're doing that I still think like you were kind of leaning into when you were going to do the thing at South by this past year is just like the music side of it. So part of the thing that I loved about the videos I was able to create was like literally on the first edit, the music was so perfect. That's great. It was like a lot of people were doing like Afro beats ish dances. And then like the music that came up went with the dances. It was a very like, that's perfect. African ish, tropical ish, sort of beat. And I was like, look at Trash winning. Like, if I didn't know you, I'd be telling everybody that it was dope. (laughs) That's so great to hear because we recently updated the dynamic music matching. So what we do is we like use the feature vectors that we extract from the video. And then based on that analysis, try to match tracks that have those tags with like a embedding space. Uh, Yeah, we did some updates. So it sounds like it's working. I've actually also noticed that my music matching has been a little bit better recently. So that's like a nice anecdotal because we ran an A-B test on it and the data was very inconclusive, but I've anecdotally heard that it's been better. So It was definitely better for me. I mean, you know what? There is another example of going with your intuition. No, it was definitely (laughs) better for me. It was the first time ever that like the first edit I got of a video I went with. That's really cool. So stay tuned because we have some major music updates coming to you very soon. Middle of August, we have got a huge feature release coming out that I am working on right now. So music is about to get a million times doper on trash.
Well, speaking of music, so I do want us to like jump into the culture moments that we had. Yes. You want me to kick it off? I do. I think like there's one dominant culture moment here for this episode. It's Beyonce, of course. It's Beyonce. (laughs) So I have so many things to say that aren't going to fit in this pod episode. But what I will say is the top line of Black is King for me is that the words Black is King are going to be on Disney Plus in millions of households. Mm. So yes, the visuals were bananas. Yes, Africa and like all the stereotypes we've seen are like blown out of the water through this film. I also want to note that she doesn't just show African traditional culture, but she also sort of goes in on Black culture, period. Mm. Like I'm in a Black sorority called Delta Sigma Theta, And there's this, like, moment where it's, like, debutante, Jack and Jill culture. Like, Hmm. there are so many Black cultural moments. I mean, the synchronized swimmers in the film were Jamaican. It's not just about, like, her connecting to Africa. It's, like, she's weaving this web of Blackness, like, from all over the world. Throughout the diaspora. Everywhere. I'm like, is she in the Tastemaker strategic meeting? Because... This is my life. <laughs> so if you're listening, Beyonce, to H. Scott Real, just know, like, I'm with you, sis. Like, this is everything. So that was dope. But for me, it was also just, like, she started working on this before COVID, before Black Lives Matter became something that, like, every corporation was trying to get on board. And so she's been working on this for, like, a year. And so to see the freaking timing of this film and it's released and like a lot of people don't know but like it's Black August which is like a celebratory time for the whole month of August that celebrates like the Haitian Revolution start of the Underground Railroad a lot of independence movements a lot of Black liberation movements all were having significant launching pads in August Mm. and so her doing it on July 31st like It's just brilliant, and... She's always been like that, though. I feel like every time she's dropped something, it's just been, like, three months before. Like, the foresight she has, the prescience to just, like, do it before anybody else does it is... That's Beyoncé. That is Beyoncé. And her work just keeps getting, like, better and better. It does. She's amazing. levels. Like, I don't even know what she does after this. I didn't even know what she was going to do after Coachella, but then, like, somehow... Somehow. (laughs) She figured out another thing. So I don't know if we're going to be... Like, I think she's going to, like, be on Mars doing some shit. Like, I don't know. Get ready for the Beyonce space station. Literally. That would be really cool. Literally. Queen Bee will take over space. I'm, like, committed to, like, this being a possibility. (laughs) But, yeah, that's definitely my culture moment. Like, not just the actual production. And I'm also, like, just proud. Like, so many people that worked on that film are, like, people I know personally. That's amazing. That's wild. Like, Blitz and Josh and Nana and Trevor And Jen, like, these are people who, in building tastemakers, like, I have built relationships with some closer than others. But it's just wild to just see these people that work so hard got that level of recognition. And it's super inspiring. That's amazing. What's your culture moment? Well, I cannot wait to watch Black is King. I need to borrow a login for Disney+. Plus. I'm going to watch it. I have a small culture moment for this show, but I pride myself on crate digging. And I have this like trick, which is like, you know, the song, Everybody Loves the Sunshine by Roy Ayers, right? Yeah. It's amazing. So Sue Jorge also has a version of that. 
And his version is like so good. It's like so deep and gravelly and it's like levels on the original. Mm -hmm. And so one of my favorite party tricks is like, oh, you think this song is good? Maybe you should hear this other version. They're like, what? But (laughs) yesterday, my friend Jasmine, who I talked about on the last pod, bested me on this because she was like, yeah, that's pretty good. But have you heard Roy's demo version? And I was like, I have not. And it's so good like his voice is just like it's like buttery and smooth in a way that like doesn't come across on the actual recording so you should all go listen to the demo version you should also listen to the sue jorge version but i would recommend listening to all three of them back to back because it's kind of like this beautiful it's like a wine tasting or something but for like everybody loves the sunshine i kind of love this so there's a red a white and a rosé like that's how (laughs) That's how it is. I kind of yeah. love this. I might do They're this They're all tonight. from the same venue. All from the same, like, uh, edition. I don't know what year the song was written, yeah. but, like, like it's I that. think it's the kind of thing that would be so good in, like, a mix if you were, like, really craft, like, had a lot of craft about how you put them together in a mix, but. I might try this myself. Yeah, maybe you should try that. Free idea. So take us home, Sheree. What are the takeaways from this episode? I think one is just, like, Don't be afraid of your intuition. If you're a founder and you know what you know, don't let anybody tell you that that's not a thing. Yeah. Don't buy into the hype that every founder builds the same way because we don't. And if you are an intuitive person that like gets it and you know you get it, then you need to like listen to it and then pair it with data and process to like supercharge the thing that you need to make it all work. So I think that's like number one. The second one is like language. Understanding that half the battle in any situation is the right language Mm -hmm. and language can be learned. Yeah. And so if you find that you're not, like it's not landing with people, ask the question, ask them to tell you what they think you're doing back. And you'll find like you can do a crash course learning in language that is relatable to investors or partners or stakeholders that are really help you out in the long run without you being lost and sort of undervalued for some like language you didn't have. Mm-hmm. The last one, I guess, is kind of related to the first one, which is really this idea that like intuition is sort of the part that's hard to teach, mm-hmm. but these other things are learnable. So learn those things. Don't rely on the fact that like you can whip up something in five days and it be epic and right on target. Yes, that's freaking amazing. But if you add some of these things that are completely learnable, then you become, in my opinion, like pretty unstoppable. And I think that should be your goal as a founder. I love it. Thank you so much for sharing this moment. This was a great one for everybody listening. Your intuition and what you have in your stomach, what you have in your gut is so important to listen to. And I wish that more women were taught to listen to that. So thank you for shouting that one out. If you like the pod, you should definitely subscribe so you don't miss an episode because we bring you this every week and I think it's starting to get good. So if you think so too, please also rate us and leave us a review. It really helps so that other people can find this show and listen to what we have to share. Ciao.